Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. Today, I sit down with behavioral economist and author Linda Babcock to discuss the power of saying no for women at work. Linda's work is focused on understanding barriers to women's advancement in the workplace and developing evidence-based interventions to promote a level playing field. She's the founder and director of the Program for Research and Outreach on Gender Equity in Society, which pursues positive social change for women and girls through education, partnerships, and research. Linda is a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and she's the author of a few other books, uh, Ask For It, How Women Can Use the Power of Negotiation to Get What They Really Want, and Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. This podcast is for any woman in the workplace who feels stretched thin, frustrated by a lack of advancement in their career, and who's afraid to say no. We discuss what an NPT or a non-promotable task is, and why women are 50% more likely to volunteer for work that doesn't advance their career. Linda and her co-authors of the book propose tactical and strategic ways we can empower women in positions of all kinds to advocate for their needs by doing an inventory of how they spend their time, understanding the currency that their company thrives on, and embracing strategies to make sure they spend their time doing work that aligns with their skills and also helps advance their role in the workplace. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Yes, Um, I'm so excited to talk to you today. You know, I I spoke about you in the intro here, but your book, uh, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work, um, is is really uh, insightful and also inspiring for a lot of women like myself and I'm sure a lot of the people listening today who've felt like they've been trapped in maybe um, the the world of, you know, non-promotable tasks, which I'll let you get into and and everything. So I'm just so excited for for this work and this research and um, yeah, again, stoked to have you here. Well, great. I love talking about our work, so I'm, I'm really happy to be here. That's great. So, you know, your book has a lot of um, strength and power and also data about why corporate corporate organizations are not um, using women the way that they can and, um, and how it's not necessarily a woman's fault that they're feeling like they always have to say yes to projects, but that it's an organizational cultural problem. Um, and I can't wait to get into this and help our listeners have actionable steps to, to move forward and find their voice and also understand how they can position themselves in a company. Um, Before we get into that, I'm always so curious about people like yourself who are researchers, academics, um, powerful people who have something to say to the world. I'd love to know just going back to life growing up for you, you know, who was influential for you at a young age? Who helped you find your voice and understand, um, you know, where you, where you might want to go in this world in terms of the work you do? Well, I guess um, I had so many role models and mentors through my career, you know, which is extremely critical Uh, and not just mentors, but sponsors, you know, people who would open doors for me. I would say that my first sort of role model would be my dad. Uh, He was an academic at Caltech, uh, a real scientist, as he would say, an engineer (laughs) rather than a social scientist like me. Um, But uh, I always admired his work ethic, 
um, how he cared about his students, how he cared about his science. And that was just really inspirational growing up to see what passion someone has for their work. Yeah. And how did that, were, were you always sort of drawn to academics at a young age? Were you always interested in the, you know, human condition and social sciences? And when did that sort of light bulb go off for you? Well, actually, I wanted to be a ballet dancer almost through my entire uh, childhood and even into young adulthood. Um, but I got injured very early. So social science seemed like the natural thing after that. Um, I, I guess um, I got really interested in why people behave the way they do just uh, as a lens to understand the world. I found economics mm. um, and that for me, gave me a perspective on lots of things to be understood and explored. Yeah. Um, so in your career, as you move forward through college and, and you know, uh, post-grad, was there a pivotal moment that allowed you to begin to direct your attention towards you know, your most recent publication? Um, actually, many of your publications are all about women finding their voice in the workplace. Uh, was there a pivotal moment or turning point where that sort of piqued your interest and you decided to go down that pathway to do that, that research? Well, I'd always been interested in gender issues. You know, I remember my father at a time when Caltech was not very uh, female friendly, um, being a real advocate for hiring women, uh, PhD students, faculty, and I just, that really stuck with me. And so in, when I was in graduate school, I wanted to study, study gender and labor, labor supply, you know, employment. And actually my advisor at the time, I ditched him soon afterwards, he said, you know, you shouldn't do gender, you'll never get a job if you do, if you do gender stuff. Um, and so I stopped doing gender stuff, and I focused on something else for my dissertation. And I didn't do it for about 10 years when I got to Carnegie Mellon. And it just became this overwhelmingly powerful drive that I had when I saw how the world operated in a really gendered way. Um, you know, I think that I'd sort of had this mistaken belief that, you know, the women's revolution had been won and everything was fine. And I got into the workplace and I was like, huh, uh, I see a lot of differences and I see a lot of bias and I see a lot of institutional constraints that hold women back. And I really wanted to study that. Yeah, that's such a great point that there, there are so many wins for women in the workplace and, and gender equality across the board, it, you know, compared from now from even 60, 70 years ago, it's night and day. And yet still, I think since we have such an evolving um, world and organizations and companies are not what they were five years even ago, um, we, I think as women need to constantly reinvent ourselves in this ecosystem and find our voice within it. So um, again, so happy you're doing this work. And, and I'm just curious now, as you think about this, are, are you are you hopeful about women's voice, uh, a woman's voice in the workplace five, 10 years down the road? Do you feel like there is a path to progress and a path to empowering women to, to say no to the things that uh, are draining their resources? I, I am optimistic and we'll get to the optimistic part later um, when I talk about really what women can do, what organizations can do. But I also, you know, I am an economist and we are called the dismal science. So I do have some pessimism that comes from just seeing that every time we see advances in women and their careers, we get a backlash against it. Um, and so maybe it's two step forward, one step back. Um, and, and so that's still progress, um, but I guess it's not as fast as I would hope it to be. Uh, and that's really why 
we wrote the book is because we thought we could kind of supercharge the moment here with some new ideas that looked at uh, workplaces in a really different way uh, and had some advice for, for companies who really wanted to level the playing field for women. Yeah, I, I love that. I wanna go um, actually to you and to your life, this idea of yes and no, which is a big conversation with women. Um, saying, saying yes to the things that matter to them that can bring up a lot of resistance or maybe I feel selfish or I don't feel like I'm you know, worthy or all kinds of things. And then this idea of saying no, you know, women are very um, traditionally in roles in households and families, caretakers and nurturing. Um, and, and it's hard to say no sometimes. I find myself saying yes to things and five minutes later, I'm like, wait, uh, can I take that back? I'm not sure about that actually. So just as you think about just being a woman in this world outside of the workplace too, um, what was your relationship to sort of saying no and advocating for your needs and your rights like you know, through, throughout life and even now, like what's your relationship to no and how do you, how do you work with it? I still have a challenging relationship with no. You know, we started our club, which we call the No Club. It's the okay. title of our book, uh, because we really realized that we were getting inundated with requests to do things at work that were really not helping us advance. And you know, we've been working on this for 12 years as a club, not just as academics, but as women trying to figure this out. And I, I'll still say that you know, we haven't, we haven't. Uh, we haven't mastered it completely yet, but we certainly are better at identifying when trouble is coming our way so that we can steal ourselves for the moment and have found effective ways to say, uh, to say no, um, that preserve our relationships and don't produce this crushing guilt that some of us have, you know, that is guilt that's kind of foisted on us by society because society is telling us that we are supposed to be taking care of others and helping and, and sacrificing. And so doing something that's a little bit counter to that brings up this guilt for us, you know, and we kind of think it's our voice, but it's really society's voice. And maybe that's something we have to unlearn a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, a lot of it for me too, sometimes. I'm curious when you say yes to something that really feels like yes, what does it feel like to you? What do you experience when it's like a full body yes, as we might say? Well, it feels great. And you can say yes when you've made time to be able to take those opportunities that come your way. If you're dragged down with a lot of drudgery at work, you don't have those opportunities because you can't even imagine getting through your to-do list, let alone take on taking something else, even if that something else is wonderful. And yeah. so to be able to say yes with a full heart um, is really, um, really what we, we have been striving for. Yeah, I really like that saying yes with a full heart. I, I kind of said the, the idea of full body yes, but you know, I, I think for women listening or really anybody listening who knows the, the nuance of yes and no and commitment and, and sort of feeling stretched thin, this idea of, um, you know, companies care a lot about the bottom line, uh, revenue, uh, productivity, efficiency. And one thing that I'm really passionate about, and I talk quite a bit about with my clients and, and also some podcast guests where appropriate, is that like, a full body yes or a full hearted yes is actually really productive. It's really, it's really efficient for um, getting things done and in sort of a, a less of a procrastination way. So yeah, if you have anything to add to that, this idea of productivity associated with like what a full hearted yes actually is. Oh my goodness. I have so much to say about that because, you know, we are obviously talking about this issue so that we can find equal opportunity for women. And that's something we all should be striving for. But 
Um, it's also the case that organizations, when they rethink the way that they manage work and how people spend their time, are actually going to be using their talent more effectively and more efficiently. So we see productivity increases and efficiency increases when we sit and take stock of what we're doing and is this the best use of my time? And so companies have an enormous amount to gain from really studying this in detail about how their employees are spending their time because you know, that's probably the most important business decision that you make every day as an employee. What am I going to work on today? For yeah. people that have that kind of autonomy in their jobs, which many of us are lucky to have, yeah. that decision is really what affects the bottom line in the end. And so really shining a bright light on this is what we're trying to do, helping both women and companies as well. I love that. Um, I think that's that's a great business model. <laughs> and why do you think uh, companies have been so resistant over the years to understand uh, just what you said, that uh, helping employees not only prioritize, but prioritize what to do with their time, but also how to advocate for their needs. If effectively, I might think of that as communication, right? Like speaking up and saying, hey, this task actually doesn't align with my job scope or my priorities this week. Why do you think organizations haven't invested in developing themselves and their people around some of these core skills? Well, there are so many other things that seem like they are more urgent business decisions. You know, in today's competitive, envir competitive environment, everything seems like it's on fire all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we're rushing to solve problems, to do things as quickly as we can. You know, when I have something that needs to be done, I don't want to have to browbeat someone who's going to, you know, maybe say no to me. I'm going to go to the person who said, will say yes, and that's typically a woman. Mm -hmm. And so we are handing off some of these tasks that we just need to get done um, to women, and that's maybe not the most effective um, use, of, use of their time. Yep. So I had this conversation the other day with a surgeon who was really frustrated because they were not using their talents to the most of their abilities because they just had an overwhelming amount of administrative work to do. Yeah. And what happened is that uh, that's really something that you don't need a specialized surgeon to be working on. And so the hospital that they worked for was losing out because they were losing patients and these were, the, the surgeon works on children. Mm -hmm. So they were having to send children elsewhere for surgery. Um, because this doctor didn't have enough hours in the day to spend on surgery. And so that's a terrible business decision. It made the surgeon really upset and unhappy. It lost revenue for the hospital and children suffered because this person is a, is a worldwide expert and wasn't getting to use their, um, uh, their, their human capital. Um, and so um, we really have to take a look at how we're using our, how we're using our time. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, great example. And when you think a lot about a surgeon who's so specialized, there's only so many people who can do what they do and uh, they're so needed. And it, it is effectively an operational fail by the institution that the people work for to, to not empower them to be in their zone of genius, right? No, that's exactly right. And so every organization needs to be more strategic about what are the specialized skills that only that person can do? Mm -hmm. And, and, and so to utilize those skills then in the best possible way. And so a certain surgeon probably should not be spending a lot of time doing the administration, um, you know, um, unless it's, you know, very high level overseeing, you know, maybe the hospital or the doctors, but this person was doing very low level kinds of things. 
And, and so really strategically thinking about how we're spending our time is something that every organization needs to carefully consider. Uh, I fully agree with that. I've, I've worked in some companies over the years and some of them have been like fast uh, growing medical startups and, and others more sort of wellness startups. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's mind boggling how much we do, do, do. And most of it actually has nothing to do with our sk skill set, our value add, and what they say we're going to be hired for. And there is sort of this, this uh, dialogue of like, you know, we have to do it for the team or the betterment of the team. But, and that's not necessarily something I, I think that we have to always challenge that there is a part of life where we have to say like, okay, this, we have to move this project forward and all of us need to focus. But I just find so consistently that within teams and organizations, um, we, we actually aren't stopping to pause and actually analyze what's essential and what really is going to move something forward. And I think a lot of that comes back to like team meetings when people are like scared to say yes and scared to say no, this actually doesn't make sense. And I think a lot about it is communication and speaking up. And so if you have any advice for, for, for women in particular, when they're in these meetings and all these you know, projects are being managed and things are moving forward and being put on their plate and, and ask them to do, you actually talk about um, and um, non-promotable tasks or NPTs in your book. Um, what advice do you have for, for women who are at these tables, you know, in this conversation who are just being scattered thin, spread thin? Yeah, so let me talk first about what NPTs are. I know it's a mouthful, non-promotable yeah. tasks, um, but this is work that is important to the organization. So it's really, it's really key to, to know that this is important work, but that won't help the person who does that work advance. So it's typically outside of your job description. It's not a metric on your performance evaluation, but these are things that really help the organization function well. So these are things like employee support. So helping others with their work, resolving office conflicts, you know, organizing events and celebrations that is the social lubricant of um, many workplaces. DEI initiatives all, almost always fall under this category that are important to the organization, but almost never rewarded in terms of who, who does those. Um, it could be something like people talk about the small things like office housework, like taking notes in a meeting or getting coffee, but that's not what the majority of this work is. It's serving on governance committees, um, helping out with hiring, you know, who you hire and bring into the organization is critical. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in HR, but yet you help interview and screen candidates and um, help to recruit, that's work that you're really not going to be recognized for, but is, of course, taking time and is important. Mm -hmm. And so these tasks, when they come up in our, in, our, um, in our research, we find that women are doing much more than their fair share. So, for example, one professional service firm that we looked at where we had detailed records about how people spent their time women were spending 200 more hours per year than men doing what the firm themselves had classified as NPTs. Wow. 200 hours a year is a lot of extra work that won't be recognized. And so, of course, if you have that much non-promotable work to do, it probably will make you cut back on your promotable work, the things that do affect your performance metric. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that, that women may appear to be less productive because of the way they are being asked by the organization to spend their time. Yeah. And that's the real tragedy of this situation is that it seems innocuous, you know, what's one thing here or one thing there, but a ton of feathers still weighs a ton. 
yeah. right? And, and so women are being dragged down with this, this work and it's really stalling their careers. And so we have kind of a two-pronged strategy that we advocate. You know, one is, is for individual women to look at their work portfolios and start shaping those in a way that focuses more on promotable work. Mm -hmm. So part of that is saying no. But that can be challenging because there's often backlash against women when they do say no to this work. Mm -hmm. And so what we are ultimately advocating for is change at the organizational level. Stop asking women to do this work or yeah. you know, um, at least make the allocation of this work more fair. Take turns, take draw, draw names out of a hat who's gonna do it. Um, make it promotable. Lots of solutions yeah. that yeah. we can change. And this is not hard. It's just changing our everyday practices. And I think this is where I really had a connection with uh, your ideas of unlearning mm -hmm. because we have these automatic uh, reflexes or norms or things that we just typically do. We don't even think about them. They're just like air. We don't see it and yet it's there. Mm -hmm. And we just have to change the way that we do things and change those practices to be fairer to women, and also allocating our talent more effectively. 100%. I, I'd love for you to, in a few minutes, we'll dive into the two-pronged approach that you know you talk about a little bit in your book too, a lot of it in your book. This idea, I want to go back to like, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a, a sort of a movement towards moving HR to more like people and culture and advocating for the needs of people. Thank goodness. Um, there's still a lot of people out there who think it's kind of waste of time or just not that important or whatever. And it's, it's mind boggling, but you know, you said once in your book that there was a piece of data you shared that like 70% of companies believe that DEI is important. It is critical to business structure. And yet only 24% of them actually formally recognize it on a performance review. Why are companies saying one thing and then not baking it into performance reviews or not baking it into a promotable task? Why is it, why, why is there that dissonance there? Yeah, that statistic is, is exactly right. It really shows the prevalence of non-promotable work because here companies are saying, yeah, this is important. We want people to do this, but no, we don't reward people for doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it, it kind of comes down to it's performance is evaluating performance is hard. We don't often have concrete metrics um, that, you know, we use to evaluate performance. And so it, sometimes it's hard to put other things like employee support, DEI activities into uh, a performance evaluation. And, you know, companies are really starting to change this and thinking more about what is it that we value and how do we reward the people we do that, uh, who do that? Um, because, you know, everyone will shirk those duties that are important, but not rewarded. Mm -hmm. And if companies really want to focus attention on those activities, they do need to start rewarding. And, and sometimes you can find creative ways to do that. Yeah, I think a lot of leaders, especially C-suite and founders need to have data to feel like they can make any big decision, which is important. Data is super important. <laughs> it drives the stories of our companies and our lives. Um, but data comes in so many different forms. And now these days we're seeing with like, 
you know, the great recession, um, uh, resignation rather, um, there we go, that like so many people are leaving jobs that they actually don't feel aligned with their values. Let's dive into these two, these two pillars of how we can make some change happen in organizations with, um, you know, women finding their voice and also organizations finding their voice. Um, you know, you, uh, you talk about the first one is sort of like this look uh, that, that women are encouraged to look at their portfolios and understand, you know, what their skills are, what their value add is, and, um, and, and how they can focus on promotable work. Do you want to expand upon that at all? Yeah, and I guess this started, you know, it sort of came to our realization when, you know, I kind of looked at my schedule of what I was doing for for a day, you know, I've got a pretty detailed calendar about what I'm what I'm doing and what I'm working on. And I kind of looked at my schedule for the day and it was all meetings. And it's not that meetings aren't always productive, but um, I'm a researcher. I get um, rewarded for doing research and teaching. And none of the meetings that I had on my calendar had anything to do with research or teaching. They were administrative meetings, governance meetings, strategic meetings, you know, for the institution, all things that no one would ever say, hey, Linda, great job, you did that, or, or um, would reward my performance. And I noticed that my colleague across the hall, who has the exact same job that I do, is a friend of mine, George, spent his entire day in his office in meetings about research. You know, he had students in there that were talking about research. He was, you know, Skyping with uh, other scholars that he worked with on project, and he was hunkered down at his computer. And it just kind of, made me realize that I needed to do an inventory of how I was really spending my time. And it was pretty stunning to realize that a very small percent of my time was spent doing the things that I'd actually been hired to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so through, through our club that was uh, five of us, uh, women who got together to talk about how we were spending our time, what we all realized is that there was just so much of this that was coming at us because we were being asked, you know, mm -hmm. our male colleagues were not being asked to do this and that we were, and that we really had to take charge of our, our schedules. And so we, we strategized about what to prioritize. What could we give up? How could we say no? Um, how could we better spend our time? And while I wouldn't say we were hundred percent effective, we were, we did pretty well in terms of having more time for the things that were really important and that was actually our job. Mm -hmm. um, the skills that, you know, using the skills we were, we were hired to, to use. And, and so we have a lot in the book about, first of all, how to do an inventory of your work, how to recognize what's promotable and not, and then how to make strategic decisions about what work to do, because everybody has to do some non-promotable work. Mm -hmm. But what non-promotable work you choose to do also matters. Do you do the thing that you really love? So I love to mentor other women. And so that's extremely non-promotable, very important to my organization. Mm -hmm. um, but that's work that I will say yes to because I personally have value. I see value in that. Yeah. Um, other non-promotable work, like for an academic, it's um, writing referee reports or, or um, uh, serving on the editorial board of a journal. I said no to all of those things because that's not how I want to spend my time. Yeah. 
there's a lot of power and autonomy once you begin to follow some of these steps you're you're suggesting here like you know find find ways to track how you spend your time create an inventory of where you are putting your time and you know where you're not and, and understanding the difference between promotable and non-promotable work i have to say that that those are just aren't the terms that I, I was thinking about when I was in a corporate function recently. I was doing a lot of non-promotable work. Most of it, in fact, ended up feeling that way. Just so much mentoring, so much human development, even though it wasn't necessarily in my job description, but someone needed to do it. It was so important. So I felt like, um, you know, hearing your language and seeing the data in your book and, and you know, you and your, um, your colleagues and friends, how you created this uh, sort of uh, path forward for us to, to differentiate between promotable and non-promotable is, is really, really important. Um, and I do hope more companies begin to, to, to turn their attention to that. So you mentioned a few examples earlier for pillar number two, that organizations at the function, at the bottom line need to change. Um, you mentioned uh, ways to just frankly make some of this important work promotable, uh, diversify the way that we allocate you know, assignments to people. What are some other ways that organizations can begin to take ownership for how they use their best resources, which are their people? Yeah, well, you said something earlier that was really important, and that is um, data and the role that data plays here, because organizations may not realize that they have a problem in terms of the inequity and in how they allocate non-promotable work. And so one of the diagnostics that we recommend and talk about in the book is for organizations to really take a look at this within their units, departments, however they're structured, to really see how this work is allocated in terms of who does what, but also the mechanism by which it's allocated, right? Do organizations ask for volunteers often to do this work? Do people do it spontaneously? Are they asked and said, say yes? Because understanding the mechanism by which it gets allocated can help to unlock how to change that. So for example, if you're asking for a lot of volunteers for non-promotable work, whether it's to plan a celebration or serve on a, a committee, our work finds that women are 50% um, more likely to volunteer to do an undesirable or non-promotable task mm. and 50% more likely than men. And so if you're asking for volunteers, of course, you're going to get a unequal distribution of this work. So maybe that's a bad practice. You know, if you're asking for volunteers, it probably also means that you don't care who it is that does this work, right? Mm. And so why don't you draw names out of a hat? randomly assign it, set up a schedule to rotate certain tasks that always come up. And that way you're going to guarantee that it's gonna be a more fair allocation um, of your talents. I really, really love that. That, um, you know, obviously it, if you're asking for volunteers it really doesn't matter who it is. And I think organizations think often, well, we're giving people optionality, but there is so much pressure and fear in organizations to like for as an employee, especially as a woman to say no. Exactly. Like, and yeah. so what, what would you say to a woman right now who's climbing the corporate ladder or just uh, not even climbing, maybe they're just surfing waves of corporate life, who is is scared to say no to non-promotable yeah. tasks, who understands that it's like a time suck, a drain, an energy suck, but they're scared and they don't know how to communicate that. Yeah. Well, we have a chapter in the book um, that we, we think of uh, amongst ourselves as sparking change. Um, and so imagine that there's a task that kind of repeatedly occurs, maybe it's on a governance committee, maybe it's a set of events, maybe it's taking notes in a meeting, you know, and you're asked to do it. You can say yes, but then you can have impact on how the how it's allocated in the future, you can say, 
yeah, I'll do it this time, but let's set up a schedule so that everybody has a chance to do it or so that this is allocated, you know, um, so everyone, you know, plays a part. And so you're you're saying yes, but you're also then changing it for the future so that you're out of the rotation until it's your time again. And so that's that's one thing that we uh, we really liked. Um, you know, you can also think about um, conspiring, although that has a very negative connotation. I mean it in a very positive way mm -hmm. um, with allies in your organization to say, you know, hey, next time it asks for volunteers, let's all just chime in and say, hey, let's rotate or, or let's draw names out of a hat. And you have many people then saying, yeah, let's do it this way. Yeah. Um, and so it can be a little less scary for you out there as a woman who are thinking about saying no and, and worried about the consequences. Yeah, I mean, I think what I hear you saying, right, is just like, you know, it's, it's yes and or it's no, but let's try this next time. And I think that idea, you know, organizations, leaders always respond really well, understandably so, to suggestions and solutions. You know, they, they may not just be thinking as broadly um, as maybe the employees might be thinking about time usage. So I think yeah. that's, that's it's exactly right. They just want to solve their problem. They want to they want someone to do this task. And then they, they want to move on to the next thing. And so if you say yes, but then suggest that, you know, in the future you rotate it, that's solving the problem for the future then too. You don't have to worry about allocating it in the future. So it can be seen as a real, as a real positive rather than fearing a negative if I'm thinking about saying no. Yeah. My intuition says yes, but you feel like if a young woman in corporate America or even in any industry is starting to find their voice and say no and learn how to advocate for their needs and understand what, you know, you mentioned once in the book, what the currency of a company is, like, what do they value, right? Um, it, you know, I imagine that there's so much confidence once you begin to flex that muscle and start to say like, you know, actually take some of these strategies and tips and apply them. Um, I think that makes me feel really hopeful about the future of women at work and, and our capacity to you know, use strategy in the way that we communicate for our needs. You know, I think that's an important fact. Well, let me give you an example. So, um, you know, my boss may, may come, come to me with a non-promotable task and I'd really like to say no to it, but I feel I can't for whatever reason, pressure, or I just can't say no to my boss. I might say something like, okay, yeah, I can, I can take that on, but in return, could you take off this other non-promotable task and give it to somebody else because I'd really like to focus on, you know, this promotable task, you know, don't call it a promotable task, but say, I really like to focus on my research. And then that will solve the, my, my boss's problem. You know, he or she gets this task done, recognizes that I'm focused on what really matters, my research. And that can become then a very positive experience rather than than a negative one. Yeah. You know, and I haven't I haven't just dumped more on my plate. I've succeeded in saying I'll I'll take this on, but can you reallocate this other thing that I've been doing? It's time that that you know someone else take this on. Yeah. I, I, again, I kind of just feel like this is I love the strategy there, but also that this is um, I, I have to feel like as I've started to use my voice and say yes and no are the right things for me that are really aligned with my priorities it feels, um, it has a ripple effect outside of work for me, you know, like in terms of even social experiences, like I, I don't always have to say yes to go to the party that starts at midnight, you know, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I, I, if you can speak about that, even just from personal experience or what you found in your research, that these things saying, um, saying no in the workplace and yes to what matters to the self might have a ripple effect on uh, broadly everything. Yeah, certainly one of my co-authors, Brenda Peiser, who's retired now, you know, we, we're sort of wondering, 
what, what's non-promotable in her world now? Yeah. And, you know, she calls these thankless tasks at home, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, things that she does under the radar that no one sees, but need to be done important for the functioning of the household. Um, you know, and, uh, and so we kind of uh, laugh about that and think about, you know, what are the thankless tasks that she wants to do? Uh, what are the ones that she's not going to do so that she has time in her in her life to say yes to doing the things that, that that she wants to do, which, you know, one of the things she wanted to do was write this book. And, you know, she did have to get rid of some thankless tasks at home in order to uh, in order to do that. So I think I think that they are really everywhere. Um, uh, this uh, this work. Yeah, I really love, uh, again, your work broadly, and particularly this book, this idea of, you know, advocating for women's needs, but also that strategy and being creative and, um, you know, offering solutions is very much a part of no, it's not, you know, just no, the end of the story. Um, so I think we're unlearning quite a bit about women's roles in the workplace, especially now in leadership positions. And as we um, learn how to delegate our own <laughs> our own tasks with a bit more mindfulness. Um, how do you, what else do you think women need to unlearn about life in the workplace or you know, um, managing their workload? Is there anything else that comes to mind about this idea of challenging and, un, and unlearning um, constructs that we have been uh, living by for some time? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we interviewed a lot of women for this book in lots of different kinds of occupations and industries, uh, lots of different ages. And we found many young women that actually didn't know what was promotable and what wasn't. And so what they figured is if my boss asked me to do this, it's important for me and it's promotable. And that's, I guess, one of the things we're, we're trying to get people to unlearn here is that there's a lot of stuff that falls through the cracks between what you do and what's in your performance evaluation. And in order to really be strategic about how to spend your time, you first have to understand what is promotable and to not assume that everything your boss gives you is, is promotable. You know, we had this um, uh, young lawyer that we talked to and, you know, for her, billable hours are the promotable activity. That's like number one through 100 on the list of promotable things is, is billable hours. And though she was asked by her boss to, um, help out on the organization of hiring summer interns for the firm. Mm -hmm. And she thought, oh, my boss, boss is going to you know, ask me to do this. Like, it's really a sign of my ability and skill and felt very good about having been asked, spent a huge number of hours on it. And it ended up taking her time away from her billable hours. And she kind of didn't do so well for a period until she realized huh, this work that I was doing, spending so much time on, it doesn't actually matter. No one said anything about it. And all they did is look at my billable hours. And for her, that was really eye-opening um, that, um, you know, not all tasks are created equal in terms of what we call promotability. Yeah, I really love that, this idea of, um, so back in my world, I worked at a medical company and we talked a lot about uh, educating our patients on like the nervous system. And what happens when we're in a, a situation where there's threat or fear, you know, our nervous system will go into, you know, fight, flight, um, fawn and freeze. And this idea of saying yes feels like a, a little bit of the uh, fawn response that like oh, our boss asked us to do something like it must mean something like the sense of flattery or wanting to like acquiesce and please. And so I think like it, it does take a little bit of women pausing just 
just pause for like 30 seconds. <laughs> that's a long time. <laughs> Even if it's a Slack message that comes through, that's a long time to pause and consider the questions to ask to figure out what is this driving and what is the bottom line and how does it actually fit me? And so I think that's something that comes to my mind as I think about, you know, hearing this. And, and if you want to add to any of that, of sort of this idea of what are the other tactics we can do beyond asking questions and pausing, you know, uh, I feel like that would be interesting. Absolutely. You know, I have a 24 hour rule. I can say no to anything immediately, but if I want to say yes, I have to wait 24 hours. I mean, that's obvious for, for things that are, you know, bigger, you know, a tiny thing I, I might agree to in the moment. Um, but it gives me the time to really reflect and not just have a gut reaction to the aspect, of course, I'm going to say yes, which is usually my response. It's, it's like, huh, is this, am I the right person for this? Is this using my skills? Or am I just a body? If I'm just a body, mm -hmm. then they don't really need me. If, you know, they need my special expertise in women's issues, that's probably something I'll say yes to. But if I'm just a body, anyone can really do it. I'll, I'll almost always say no to it because I know I can better serve the organization by using, doing the things that I'm maybe uniquely qualified to do. Yeah. What advice would you have to female leaders who are assigning possibly non-promotable tasks sort of unconsciously, just they're, they're in these positions and they're out there and they're following the lead of the herd and maybe they just don't have that awareness yet. What advice would you have for them as they think about delegating to their team of direct reports? You know, and this is the same for male and female leaders. You really have to think strategically about how you use your human capital. And often we have stuff we just need to get done. And if it's this non-promotable work, it's typically things that it doesn't matter who does it. And so we sometimes just reflexively and subconsciously really without realizing it, we're gonna go to a woman because we know she's gonna say yes, I'm not gonna have to browbeat the man in order to do it. Um, and that we have to realize that that's just a tendency that we have to unlearn here um, and, and allocate things more fairly. So I think it's just to be a little more strategic about those really, really important personnel decisions. Yeah. I think strategy is a huge part of it and pausing. I love your 24 hour rule. Um, my gut instinct is often to say yes to quite a few things. So I, I'll, maybe I'll play with that this week and see if that helps me. Yeah, it gives you, it gives you kind of a, a, a guideline. For me, I kind of need guidelines like that. Otherwise there's just too much gray in the world for me. Um, yeah. So it, it helps me. Yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll, we're going to come to a close here to a wrap, but um, this has been such an incredible conversation, very tactical, um, very helpful from like a practical sense. I can't wait to put a lot of these bullets in the show notes and obviously direct everyone to your book itself and your work. Um, I, a couple questions, I guess, before we, we close. When, you know, the school of unlearning is about questioning, it's about uh, rethinking and reimagining the way that we operate under ideas and constructs. So what do you think of uh, when you think of the word unlearning, how might you define it or express it in your world? Well, I think so much of our world, we just follow norms and um, just blindly um, because they're just, um, they're not things that we can see, but they guide our behavior in, in so many ways. And I guess just to be really conscious of norms, especially, you know, for the work I do around gender, the, because our world is very gendered, and pay attention to how those norms are influencing our decisions in a way that we wouldn't like. You know, we had an experience where 
when they, Lisa of Esterlund, who's also one of the co-authors of the book, came into one of our club meetings and said, oh my God, I'm such a terrible person because I just, she was chair of a department and she just put women on six different committees and for academics committees is non-promotable. And she hadn't even asked men. She was like, I just burdened my mm -hmm. female colleagues and I just didn't even think about it. Mm -hmm. And and so she confessed that to us. And, and we, we, we thought about that for a long time. We thought, yeah, you know, she was just influenced by norms that seemed like the right person for the job as a woman. Like she's going to say yes. And yeah. um, so I guess for me, the power of norms is so much what guides our behavior um, that um, we have to, I think, pay a little more attention to it um, in our world. I love that you finished that with pay attention to it. I think that might be the beginning of it all is, you know, we can't unlearn until we can simply understand our patterns within the norms. And um, that idea, you know, the 24 hour sort of framework you give yourself before you say yes to something big, like a lot of, I think, leadership and human development, uh, developing as a human consciously is simply about paying attention to like, when we say yes, we feel, uh, you know, we feel this in our body, like a yes up here, but like our body clenches and we feel anxious and nervous and we're ruminating. Like that might not be a full body. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. you, know, you might have to wait a little bit. And I think your body gives you such great data. And even your, your example here of like your friend and colleague, who's, who's unconsciously kind of doing the things that maybe she's advocating for. It's just, it's so pervasive, you know? Yeah. And I think this, why, why we're really optimistic about this work and the potential for change is that we think it has a lot more traction than say unconscious bias. Not that not conscious bias is not important. I think it's incredibly important into how we make decisions and, and our behavior. But unconscious bias, it doesn't leave any fingerprints. And so we often cannot see the bias that's inherent in our behavior and our decision-making. Whereas things like how we allocate work that's very visible, you know, oh, wow, I just asked six women and women are a minority in my department. That's so interesting, you know, that, 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 that you can see. Um, and so we believe that this allocation of work is because it's really measurable. Can, we can really make changes in, in how we do that. Yeah, I, I really love that. That's a great example. And I think you're right. Like when I was reading your book, I was like, oh, I had, didn't have a language. I didn't have a framework for why I felt so spread thin and yet I was doing so much and not gaining the traction I thought I wanted or deserved, you know? Yeah, uh, we're hoping that non-promotable task just becomes a word that people know yeah. um, because we do, I, I totally agree with you. It get, does give us a language and insight into this problem. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think the data you've uncovered, you and your team, like is, is an incredible asset to, to be able to move this conversation forward. I'm curious after this book, you know, it's gotten a lot of good press and I love it. I'll be sharing it on this podcast. What might be next for this conversation in this movement? Uh, do you have a, a next vision or a creative step that you feel like will help uh, keep moving this book forward and this conversation forward about non-promotable tasks? Yeah, I mean, we think that the revolution is going to be sparked by women demanding change in their organizations. You know, you talked about the great resignation um, and one of the re big reasons why women leave their jobs is that they're not doing work that they find fulfilling or using their talents. And if they're dragged down with non-promotable work, they're just, you know, it causes so many problems for them in terms of 
not just stalling their advancement, but affecting their psychological health about how they're spending their time, they're stressed out, they're overworked. Um, and so we believe that, that women with this lens that we're providing in the book will really start demanding change in their organizations. Um, and we think then that that does spark uh, organizations to act, especially in the labor shortage. Yeah. Um, and because that's where the real rubber hits the road here. That's where real change is going to happen is when organizations figure out that they can change the way they allocate and reward work, become more efficient and productive and level the playing field for women at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's going to be kind of a no brainer for them because, you know, organizations have been working for decades on women's advancement issues. And we've had a ton of, uh, of initiatives that organizations have tried and they've made a little progress, but certainly not the progress that anyone had hoped, you know, organizations included. And we think that this is a major factor in holding women back. And once organizations see that, they're gonna be anxious to change. Yeah, I, well, I firmly believe that too. And, and, and showing the way by women leading the way and collecting the data and, and continuing to, to share that out. I think that's gonna be, really game-changing for women and for organizations too. Um, so thank you for giving this uh, language and, and again, the research and your work is so appreciated and it certainly helped me think uh, more strategically about my own time and, and what I'm doing in, in my own world too, so. Well, that's great. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't wanna miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast because our learning and unlearning never ends and we don't have to do it alone.